Isn't it amazing when music can bring you right to the gate? It's a great thing. For a moment, I'd like you to think about one of your favorite meals. And I'd like you to consider the fact that you'll probably eat that meal again sometime in the near future, even though you've had it many times. And when you do, I'm sure you will not only enjoy the aroma, the flavor, the texture, but you'll also benefit from it physically. It'll be nourishment. <clears throat> Unless, of course, your favorite meal is Captain Crunch or some other sugar-coated, ultra-refined carbohydrate. And there is a long-standing relationship, analogy, between food and the scriptures. We all have our favorite passages that we return to often. And they still feed us. And even though the passage we are going to be thinking on together today is familiar to all of us, and we've eaten this meal before, in fact, many of you here today could probably bring more insights to it than I will. I hope we can still savor a little aroma, taste a bit of flavor, feel a hint of texture, and hopefully even squeeze some calories out of it, spiritual calories, if you will, for our mutual benefit. Amen? Brendan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, puts forth the hypothesis that the main thrust of Jesus' teaching ministry was to convince his listeners that the great Yahweh, the God who flooded the earth, the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who heaped plagues on Egypt, the God who drowned the Egyptian army in the sea, the God who descended on Sinai with fire and smoke and thunder and shook the mountain, that guy, that God, is actually merciful and forgiving and full of grace. That he is a heavenly father who is concerned with individuals, that he knows our names, and that his care and concern for each person is unique and custom-fitted. And there are scriptural examples to strengthen Brendan's hypothesis John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but he who came from the bosom of the Father, he has explained him to us. And when Jesus' disciples were wanting to learn how to pray and he taught them how to pray, how did he tell them to address God? Our Father, who art in heaven. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? about the kingdom, he said, your father gladly wants to give you the kingdom. And how did Jesus answer Philip when Philip said, show us the father? He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And Paul in Romans says that when we understand our adoption as sons, what do we cry out? Abba, father, Abba. That's the ancient Hebrew way of saying daddy. It's intimate. The story of the prodigal is considered the crown jewel of that teaching that our God is our Heavenly Father. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher and author from Westminster Chapel, he called the parable of the prodigal the gospel, 
within the gospel. So our text today is Luke 15. You can either turn there or if you have a device, you can bring it on your device or we will have the text up on the screen. And first we have the setting where, where, this, where these stories take place. Who was listening? Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. First of all, we see there are basically two groups in the audience. The tax gatherers and the sinners are one group. Now sinners here is best translated irreligious. Today we'd call them the unchurched. And Mark 2 tells us they followed Jesus around from town to town. And why? Well, for sure, we know some of them did it for the bread and the fish. Jesus even told them that. Some of them did it for the healing. But many were coming and following him because for the first time, they were hearing a message from a rabbi that maybe, just maybe, there was hope. Hope that God was not willing to cast them aside. And of course, the other group we have is the Pharisees and the scribes, the black hats. And they're grumbling. It causes us to remember when Jesus told the story about the two men who went up to the temple and pray. You'll remember this story. The Pharisees' prayer at the temple was, Oh God, I thank you I'm not like other people. I do all the do's and I don't do any of the don'ts. I am as right as rain and I thank you for it. I know you're pleased with me, God, because look how good I am. The tax gatherer, on the other hand, he didn't even feel worthy enough to lift his eyes up to heaven. And his prayer was very simple. Oh God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And that's basically the two groups that we have listening to Jesus' message. And have you ever wondered why the black hats were so upset that Jesus ate with the tax gatherers and the sinners? This accusation that was often leveled at Jesus that he ate with them, it has significance. For the ancient Hebrew, when you sat down to a meal with someone, that was the ultimate way to extend the hand of friendship. There was no more important way for you to say to somebody, I want to have relationship with you and to have a meal with them. It was a big deal. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, the priests, they were willing to talk to the unwashed. They were willing to let them, they were willing to tell them what they knew those non-religious, unchurched folks needed to hear. But relationship with them? Never. And so Jesus decides he's going to tell them a couple of stories, and he tells them the sheep and the coins. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. 
I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he told him the coin story. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. <laughs> I'm wondering why the words look so hard to see. Oh, there they are. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, evidently, the scribes and the Pharisees were not overly impressed with these two stories. Sheep? Well, sheep has value. After all, we have our David. And what did he tell Saul would happen if a bear or a lion came and took one of his sheep? I chase that bear down and I kill it. And I save the sheep. Or I chase that lion down and I killed him. And I save the sheep. The sheep has a value. And I guess they weren't all that bowled over by the coin story either. The coin had value. And the fact that Jesus used the term ten coins as significance to the listeners. For at an ancient Hebrew wedding, the bride, her bridal headdress, had ten slots in it. And if you were a guest of means and you came to that wedding, you would bring a silver coin with you, a drachma worth one day's wage, and you would give it to the bride. And she'd put it in one of the empty slots in her headdress, and when it was full, ten of them, then the headdress was full, and it was a, it was a, 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 a monumental moment in the, in the wedding ceremony. And... For most women in that culture, that was her only personal wealth were those ten coins. Joy over finding the lamb, we can accept that. Joy over finding the coin, we can accept that too, Jesus. Those things have value. But tax gatherers, sinners, them, that rabble, where's the value? So, in his attempt to reveal the loving, forgiving, merciful nature of his heavenly father, Jesus presents the supreme story, the prodigal son and his older brother. And first we'll see the prodigal's descent. Verse 11, And he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. No one was giving anything to him. 
Jesus is creating one unsympathetic character here. In fact, he's creating a character that's not going to not only have no value to the Pharisees and the scribes, but a lot of the tax gatherers and the sinners are not going to be too high on this guy either. First of all, he breaks the honor your father and mother commandment. This is a huge deal in the Hebrew culture. Hey, Dad, I know I'm supposed to wait around until you die, then receive my inheritance with the proper amount of respect and sorrow. But I can't sit around here and wait for you to die. I have places to go, things to do, people to meet. I need money to do that, and I need the money now. All the listeners immediately were looking at this young son with a pretty negative perspective. And then, of course, he goes off to a distant country. Do you notice that? Of course he goes far away. He's about to embark on activities that he doesn't want anyone to know about. For sure he doesn't want his father to know what he's up to. And what does the ancient proverb say? He who separates himself seeks his own desire. And then the next thing he does is he breaks the do not commit adultery commandment. Loose living, it says. Well, we know from verse 30 that he squandered it all on prostitutes. Now you think of the years it takes to build up the value of an estate. He blows the whole thing on sex. And the final step in his descent? Working with pigs. Not sheep, not cattle, not goats, not the trades, not commerce. Pigs. And for the ancient Hebrew, the real orthodox practicing Pharisee, circumcision and diet, they are like the main pillars of the whole deal. And pigs are an unclean food. The ultimate no-no in their diet, the most unclean animal in their culture, and he's having contact with them every day. Now to the listeners of this story, it is somewhat familiar up to this point, maybe not as detailed, but they've heard this story before. And in their story, their account that they're used to hearing, the son does come home. However, when he does, the father refuses to let him see his face. And he ends up serving the older brother. In fact, the older brother is delighted to have his little brother home and give him what he deserves. He's delighted. It was a tale of warning, this story that the Jews were used to hearing, that the crowd was used to hearing. A story with a moral. If you dishonor your parents, if you commit adultery, if you wallow in unclean things, the best you can hope for is to be your brother's servant. Don't expect to be reunited with your father. Things are never going back to the way they were. They even had a parable for this, a proverb, excuse me, for this. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. That fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. There are a number of Jesus' parables that we read, that we're familiar with, that were actually stories 
his listeners were familiar with it. They'd heard many times. The parable of the unrighteous judge, the parable of the night visitor, uh, the parable of the early morning, noon, and late day workers are a few of them. These are stories they were familiar with. However, when Jesus told these stories, he would change the ending or he would give an interpretation that was not what they were expecting or not what they'd previously heard. And the story of the prodigal is such a case. And so now we see the prodigal turns in verse 17. But when he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You know, he got himself in this predicament all on his own. By his own scheming and desires, he discovered the destination a person can reach when they decide to go all out in pursuit of their passions apart from the Father's presence and guidance. Life is pretty low when you are looking fondly at pig slop. Hey, that doesn't look so bad. It makes dumpster diving look like high rent. He proved Proverbs 14 true. There is a way which seems right to man, however its end is the way of death. And then we come to verse 17. I love verse 17. But he came to his senses. The fog lifted. The deceitfulness of sin was exposed. He saw the truth and he saw himself for what he really was, what he'd really done, what he'd really become. And what did he do? He turned. And he got up and went. And where did he go? I will get up and go to my father. And now we see the father responding the first time. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost and he's been found and they began to celebrate. Well, first of all, verse 20, it's that verse in the scriptures that all of us have read and reread and cherished many, many times. We've probably heard messages and read commentary that expound on just this verse. And that's as it should be. It's a powerful image. He felt compassion and he ran. He was not demanding an appropriate amount of groveling. 
He didn't erect any hurdles of formal repentance that his son had to jump over in order to prove that he was truly sorry and finally ready to do right. No. He saw him a long way off. He already knew his heart had turned. His boy was coming home. And he ran to him. And what did he do after he ran to him and hugged him and kissed him? Well, he did five things that had a lot of meaning to the listeners. First of all, he ignored his son's prepared statement of contrition. Now, obviously, there's absolutely nothing wrong with confession and verbal apology. However, it did not move the father. He was already moved. We know that God sees the heart. He saw him already. He saw that he'd already turned. He saw that he was on his way home. He just ignored this statement of contrition. And what did he command his servants? Quickly, quickly. My son is all naked and haggard looking and, ah, we're going to make things right. And we're going to make things right now. Quickly bring it. Second, put the best robe on him. He covered his shame. He covered his nakedness, and not with fig leaves. He put a robe on him that elevated him. Think Joseph. Thirdly, he put a ring on his hand. Now, wearing the ring meant belonging to the family. The ring established position and honor in the family, and the ring meant that you could carry out official family business. If you were trying to conduct business for the family, and someone were to question whether or not you actually had authority to do business on behalf of your father, all you had to do was hold up your hand, show them the ring. It was the seal of authority. The fourth thing the father did is he put sandals on his feet. In the ancient world, the line that was drawn that really divided the people who were in absolute total poverty from those who weren't was sandals. In in our culture, we might think of it as homelessness versus not homeless. At least I have a roof over my head. I mean, that is a line, right? A demarcation of total poverty and maybe not total poverty. At least I have a roof over my head. Well, at least I have sandals. The poorest of the poorest of the poor walked barefoot. I'm assuming at some point he must have traded his sandals in for food. So his father lifted him out of his completely impoverished condition. He was not going to have his son be poorer than poor. And sandals also represent the equipping of someone for service. Think work boots. A person needed sandals if they were going to get some serious work done, and they needed to be equipped. And finally, the fifth thing, he fed him. Son, you look like you might be hungry. And not just any meal, the best of the best, no goat, no chicken, no lamb, 
No, he got the fattened calf. They had a feast. And notice that he and his servants ate with him. The ultimate restoration of relationship. My friends, God's forgiveness is not muted. It is not partial. It is not subject to changing moods or emotions or whims. It does not come with strings attached. And most importantly, and maybe the idea that will help us grasp the greatness of God's forgiveness is that it's not human. It's above human. It's divine. I believe God wants us to not only know we're forgiven, he wants us to fully understand our forgiveness. He wants us to feel it. I believe the true foundation for devotion to God lies in us understanding his forgiveness toward us, that we are forgiven. Think of the woman wiping his feet with her hair and tears at the, at the dinner. She was forgiven much. I believe the true foundation for our relationship with one another lies in us accepting his total forgiveness of the brother or sister we're sitting next to. And I believe the true foundation that will enable us to reach out to the pre-Christian, my new favorite term, Phil, lies with us understanding the great forgiveness the Father wants to bestow on them. The gospel is not, get your act together, clean up your life, start walking with God, stop being an addict, stop being a thief, stop being an adulterer, stop being a liar, stop being whatever noun you want to choose. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting God's not concerned about these issues, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is, let the fog be lifted. Accept the truth. Believe. Turn your heart toward home. And when you do, when you turn your heart toward the Father, he will run to you and lavish his forgiveness on you. He will cover the shame of your actions and the emptiness of your pursuits with his royal robes. He even has a name for those robes. He calls them the robes of righteousness. And he will restore you fully into the family. He will give you position, he will give you purpose, and he will grant you the authority to carry out his will. He will equip you with gifts. And he will feed you with more than filet mignon from a fattened calf. He will feed you with the spiritual food your soul longs for. That's the gospel. I guess that's why they call it good news. And a side note here that's not in the text. I usually don't like to vary off the text, but I'm going to for just a minute. If you're a person who's in the midst of the struggle to find purpose and direction in your life, you can't seem to find it. Uh, it's not found in the distant country. It's found in your father's house. Well, now our story does not end here because <coughs> there's an older brother in our story, in Jesus' story, and a very important part of the story. 
Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants, and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because as he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, look. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. He became angry, and he would not go in. He became angry, and he would not go in. And what exactly was he angry about? And who was he angry with? First of all, he could not ex- excuse me, he could not accept the merciful and forgiving nature of his father. Notice he says, "This son of yours, he doesn't even want to be associated with him. Look what he's done. How can you forgive him? He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Do you ever wish when you're reading the Bible that somehow you could hear the inflection in the voice? I wish so many times I could, or that you could actually see what was happening. And I've often wondered at this point if Jesus kind of lifted his eyes, if he looked over to the black hats for a moment and he said, <coughs> look here, boys, <laughs> this is for you. I'm talking to you now. Of course, we don't know that. We can only speculate. And of course, the great thing about speculating is it's okay. <coughs> There's no law against meditating on the scriptures and letting the Lord expand your viewpoint of what you're looking at, is there? And the second thing that the older brother's mad about is he didn't feel that he'd been properly rewarded for his faithfulness. I've been serving you for years, he says. And the King James Version translates it, slaving for you. I've never neglected a command of yours. Why, I've done all the do's, I've never done any of the don'ts, you've never even given me a goat. I'm better than that son of yours over there. He's not my brother anymore. He gets the fattened calf and I get nothing. Are you blind, Dad? He not only doesn't deserve to be forgiven, he sure doesn't deserve to be restored, and there's no way you can trust him to have any part of the family business. How can you even eat with him? And now we get to see the father again. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And now we get to see the gentle and restorative nature of the father. Notice first, he went out to him. He left the party, the celebration the good time. And he went out to speak with his older son. This is so our father's character. He is a seeking and saving God. 
What did Jesus say when everyone got mad at him for telling Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, and everybody was scandalized. And Jesus said, oh, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It then says that he began pleading with his son. I am not a Greek scholar. However, I can pretend to be one. And so can you. With all the expository dictionaries, Greek concordances, the lexicons, and the language sites on the internet, anybody can act like they know Greek. So I'm gonna just pretend like I do for a minute, okay? Because there are times when the original word gives a fuller meaning to what we're reading, and I think this is one of those times. The word for pleading here is perikaleo. It means to come alongside, to reason with, to console, to give comfort. It's a close cousin and shares the same base word as parakletos, the word Jesus used to describe the comforter who he would send. Remember, he said, I'll send the comforter to you, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It's the same base word, verb tense, noun tense. There is an implication here of the father coming out to his son, putting his arm around him, trying to comfort him, trying to reason with him. I can see him because he loves this son too. I believe it's a tender moment. And what does he say to his oldest son? You've always been with me. All the things that you've said that you've been doing, they're all fine and good. But I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. Have you not enjoyed being with me all these years? Has it just been slaving to you? Relationship, you and me. It's more important than anything else. And the second thing he says to him, all that is mine is yours. You don't have to ask me for a goat to have a party with your friends. All the goats are yours. In fact, if we go back to verse 12, you notice it says that the father divided his wealth between them. And if he only had two sons, the younger one got two-thirds, or one-third, the older one got two-thirds, he already got a bunch He doesn't have to ask for a goat. They already belong to him. And then I love what what he says in verse 32. This brother of yours. He's throwing back that son of yours saying right on him. He's still your brother. Once in the family, always in the family. This father really had two sons that were lost. One was lost to sensuality and the impatience of youth. He was the younger brother after all. And the other was lost being all bound up with duty, unable to forgive, and oblivious to the high calling, the high privilege of dwelling in his father's presence. And if we were to go back to think about those two groups that were there at the beginning, the listeners of these stories that Jesus is telling, those two groups, the tax gatherers and the sinners on one hand, the Pharisees and the scribes on the other, two groups, two sons. Evidently, Jesus knew how to teach. Jesus is saying something to both groups. 
I believe he's saying, my Father in heaven, he wants to have relationship with all of you. And he wants you to have relationship with one another. He wants you to understand and accept the vastness of his forgiving nature. And you know, it's interesting to me, I think all of us in here quite easily can accept the vastness that God represents in creation. I mean, it's just unbelievable. When you start to meditate on creation and think about the infinite nature of it, the complexity of it, we have no trouble acknowledging the greatness of God in that setting. But somehow we struggle to think God is that great in the realm of forgiveness. He's not. He's just as great there. If you're here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that you're in a distant land, come to your senses, turn toward home. If you're here this morning and you think there are persons or people or even types of people that God should not forgive, Remember, he has forgiven you. And if you're here this morning and you're bound up in thinking that the Christian life is all about do's, don'ts, and duty, don't stay outside the feast. Come in and eat. Enjoy relationship with your father and with your brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, you can talk to the Lord about these issues in your own private place, your home, or wherever. Uh, You can have a quiet moment in your seat here when we're done. That's all good. But if you're someone who would like help, you'd like someone to stand alongside you, pray for you, listen to you, console you, comfort you, there will be people up here in a minute who will be happy to pray with you. And finally, I also believe there are folks here today where the issues that we touched on are really not necessarily pressing issues. You're enjoying God. You deal with malice in your heart when it shows up. You understand your freedom in Christ and you know you need God's mercy every day. Well, that's the best of all. That's as it should be. It's the good place we long to be in and it's a testimony to the sanctifying power of our Lord. Let's close with a short prayer. Oh God, I do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as a heavenly father. And all of us in here this morning acknowledge that we are grateful for receiving your mercy and grace and also in need of it every day. Amen.